0: Welcome to The Collective Tap, Conversations About Water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Our first season is titled The Spigot. It focuses on the water that comes into our homes and the ways we use it. Join us as our field host, Taz Walters, and Devin Dabney talk with experts about what exactly is in our water, the real cost of a green lawn, how water-related issues impact our health, and the affordability of this basic resource. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Jack Whitman from Interra. John Duffy of Carmel Water Utility, and Michael Payton from Greenscape Geeks. We will examine how the demand for irrigation impacts our water supply, what that means for fire safety today, and water security in the future, and learn about some less thirsty landscaping alternatives. First up, Dr. Jack Whitman, Vice President of Strategy at Intera, tells us why water will never be less important, and why, whether or not you have or even like green lawns, you're still paying for them.
1: My name is Jack Whitman, and I'm the vice president at Interra. Interra is a company that does water supply planning, water resources, and also we do a bunch of other things. We work on mining and nuclear waste isolation and environmental cleanups. But we also have a water group, a water division.
2: Do you like lawns?
1: Yeah, actually, I kind of adore lawns because I <laughs> I had one of my early jobs that I had as a kid was I worked on a golf course and I was I had to basically I was mowing greens and raking traps and doing work like that. I mean there's something really British about it and really mm-hmm. stylized. So I happened to really and I play golf I mm-hmm. because of all that experience, I ended up playing golf. Um, so, I definitely appreciate the aesthetics of lawns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, I, I almost know too much about what we do, what, what the water part. So, it's it's a different thing today than it was when I was younger.
2: So, what is the impact of having a green lawn on our water system in Indiana?
1: Well, the main thing is that it is suburban agriculture kind of. We're mm-hmm. growing plants with water and we put water on it just to make sure that it um, is healthy and green. And we we try to carpet our yards mm-hmm. w- with a, another continuous color and a continuous surface. Um, and it's nice for kids and everything else just to have a lawn outside. The problem with that is that It takes quite a bit of water to keep the lawn green. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that that additional water that we use in the summertime when the lawn is being watered, it really, we didn't need that during the winter. So the water plant that is producing the water has to produce more water Mm -hmm. because we put drinking water on our lawns one of the reasons that we have to pay the dollars that we do have to pay for water is because the plants have to be large enough not for those low times of year, but you have to build a plant that's big enough to treat mm-hmm. the large volumes. So the plant size, which is a huge part of the total assets of the utility, has to be extremely large for the for the community they're serving if there's a lot of lawn watering. Mm-hmm. So it really gets back to money a little bit. And I think, I think it's also changing because people are becoming more aware of these connections. Even mm-hmm. golf is changing. Now golf courses are almost all shifting towards uh, reclaimed water. So water that would be either gray water or some other maybe wastewater stream that's been cleaned and filtered. Can be put onto lawns
2: i read something that was saying water will never be less important
1: the fact is that there's a future in water in water science in water resources and in all sorts of water related um, study that is going to always grow and it will always be international as well as local
2: What would be the impact if nobody in Indiana watered their lawn ever again?
1: The way that watering your lawn works, and the way that the utilities work, is it um, it might not change much, but the water utilities would could all be a smaller size. That's actually a way to get less expensive water. It's important to think about that when if you go, the people who water their lawns usually have large lawns they care about them enough to maybe put sprinklers in them, automatic sprinklers. <laughs> That's actually driving a lot of these peak demands. One of the questions that comes about when you start thinking about these peak demands is that the peak demand doesn't happen when we have a lot of water. It happens when we don't have very much water flowing in the stream. Mm-hmm. The air is drier than it used to be in the in the spring and the fall. Mm-hmm. So So we are using it. The plants are using it. Other people are using it, and there isn't as much falling because, it's, it, or, or making it to the stream because it's going through the plants instead. Um, so the fact is, when we push our demands extra at this high, at, at the highest demand time, we are putting the most stress on the aquifers, and not really just the aquifers, the streams too. So streams that would have otherwise been flowing and and healthy ecologically, that is cool, higher oxygen in the water and all that so animals can live in it, um, are now all of a sudden lower flows and warmer. Peak demand for lawn irrigation
3: raises the utility costs. Does that mean that if you don't have a lawn
1: that you're still paying, in theory, for someone else's lawn? Per gallon, you are. The fact is when, when there are high peaks and low valleys, you have to be able to have a utility that can push out that much and also run. There's actually problems at the low end too because mm-hmm. water takes a long time to get through the pipes to your house and it can lose its disinfectant quality. Mm-hmm. So there are reasons you want it kind of to be more steady.
2: We've been talking a lot about where the water comes from and there's a huge demand. You're drying all this water. Well, then you're putting all of that water into the ground. Is that impacting like our watershed to be putting all this water in different places where there's not usually water?
1: So there are a lot of different angles to look at this. Um, and lawn watering, for the most part, not much of it gets past the root zone. So not much of it goes down into the aquifer and Mm, into the, you know, into the soil. It really is consumed pretty much at the surface, which is, you know, a little bit of an issue because that goes right into the atmosphere and goes into the next. It's really lost, in a way, to the basin.
2: So all that water that we're taking and putting on the lawns, we're not getting that back into our water system, really?
1: The amount that it takes to keep the lawn green is used to grow the plant. So the so oh. it's transpirated then back into the atmosphere, the plants are losing water as they grow. They push water into the atmosphere. So that water is lost to the atmosphere. Man, so the water's just I'm sorry, I'm still not over this. The water's just gone? Like how do we not how do we not so, run out okay, of water? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. How do we not run out of water? And the answer is that because especially here, especially in Indiana, we are in a, a place where we're getting really warm air from the Gulf coming up from the south. We get the cold air and sometimes saturated air from the from the north, and they they come together right here in Indiana, and we're one of the only states that's really not going to see much in terms of climate change for water. It'll be some, but not like some states. Some states further west are having... They're already seeing the change. Mm-hmm. It's not a, even a question. Here in Indiana, we're going to have a lot of water coming from the sky. That's just how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. What we have to think about, though, is that there, there is a water cycle. Part of the water that we are seeing now while we're so wet is part of the reason that the west is so dry. Mm-hmm. It's dodging the west, and it's falling here. So, the same amount of water is in the atmosphere. Everybody kind of says there's all this the same amount of water on the planet. Yeah. And that's true. It's just not falling in the West and it is falling here more. So, we've actually had increases in the amount of water over the past 15 years.
2: If you could tell every person in Indiana who waters their lawn one thing, what would you tell them?
1: You're probably watering it more than you need to. And this is speaking as a person that watered golf courses. Sure. I, knew, I knew how yeah, much to put yeah. on to keep, the, <laughs> to keep the fairway green. The other thing is that that explains why there, in some cases, it explains why water rates are going up a little faster.
2: Seems like what you were saying where the times that we are demanding water, it's when it's, there's not a lot of water.
1: All of us on this earth need water at the same time. I think of us as it's actually a bond we have with the mm-hmm. rest of the world. I mean, the, the the other, the plants, the animals, they all need water at that time and there isn't much. So it kind of is almost a strategy we have to think about is like, well, we're part of this. We're not separate from it. Mm-hmm. We We have to, you know, breathe sort of with the rest of the earth here a little bit.
0: In this next interview, John Duffy, the director of Carmel Water Utility in Carmel, Indiana, picks up where Dr. Whitman left off. He helps us understand how the demand for lawn irrigation impacts utilities, their efforts to plan infrastructure upgrades, usage rates, and other municipal services, including the fire department.
4: My name is John Duffy. Um, I'm the utility director for City of Carmel Water and Wastewater Utility. You were talking about the differences between
3: the kind of water that you're pulling in versus, like, citizens. Could you just kind of explain to me a little more what the differences are?
4: city of Carmel water is, all of our supply, all of our water comes from the ground. We have uh, 18 uh, wells that are in the, uh, the eastern part of Carmel, closer to the river. Uh, they're anywhere from 60 to 110 feet deep down to the ground. So we're p- pulling up uh, groundwater. Um, really no different than a homeowner's well, it's just that ours are a whole lot bigger. Um, The other source of supply that utilities use is either the river or a reservoir uh, or a combination of the two. But uh, from a treatment perspective, we're fortunate to have enough supply uh, to be able to pull from the ground as opposed to the river.
2: During the summer months, how do you see the demand for water change?
4: During the summer months, we will go from an average of 7.5 to 8 million gallons a day to as high as 24 to 25 million gallons a day. And there's predominantly uh, automatic lawn irrigation that drives that demand. People do use more water in the summertime when it gets warmer, you, you do more laundry, take more showers. Um, there's there's pools, pool fill-ups. Uh, people just use more water, but. Um, the, the larger percentage of that demand is uh, automatic lawn irrigation, um, at least in Carmel, anyway.
2: So that seems like a very high number. <laughs> like, how does that impact other things like firefighting or public safety or, or businesses that need to draw water?
4: While we'll go to 24 to 25 million gallons in a day, we actually have capacity to treat and distribute in excess of 34 million. So it's, it's not, um, we have the water to be able to do it and we do do it. The real challenge um, irrigation can present is um, the majority of the systems are on at night and they will run from two o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the morning. So of that 24 million gallons, um, roughly 40 to 45% of it comes in about a four or five hour period. Mm-hmm. So you have to be, your system has to be sized and you have to have water ready to go and out into the system uh, to be able to meet that demand. If, if you don't um, get the water out there to meet that, then yes, it can have a potential impact on firefighting in that mm-hmm. you're impacting the ability to fight a fire potentially, um, during that time period. I mean, the other challenge is on the financial side. So if you, I mean, and you're correct, we have to build a system that can deal with that um, three, four months out of the year, sometimes five months, sometimes two months, mm-hmm. sometimes one week. And if it gets rainy and cold, then we don't use that system we have built and there's a financial impact in that because we have built the system you need to get a certain amount of revenue to be able to pay for that system so it, there's a medium road there's a balance in there somewhere and ideally and depending on how hot and dry it gets it can be hard to find that balance
3: the the idea of conservation is so challenging for a, a utility plant because you literally need people to use water.
4: Yes, to a certain extent, it, yeah. It, um, the impact in the end is on rates. Mm-hmm. If, if we build the system and people aren't using it, yet we still have to staff for it, we have to be ready for it, and you don't get that revenue. So like I said, there's a balance in there somewhere of getting out of hand yet at the same time getting the revenue we need to operate.
2: I have a question I've been asking our guests on this lawn episode. Uh, do you like lawns?
4: I actually do like lawns. I, okay. I like, as a homeowner, I like cutting my grass. Um, I like I like a nice looking lawn. Uh, not to the extent that I would put in automatic irrigation. Um, what I understand why people want, they've invested a lot of money in their lawn and their landscaping, and I understand why they want to keep it looking nice. Sometimes at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> like lawns a whole lot.
3: That's a new one for me. I didn't know like, why 2
4: to 6 in the morning? This is where others that know about turf grass better than I do will say that that's the best optimal time to water because you don't have evaporation, soaks in better. And the other thing is people don't want to water at, uh, you know, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning because they want to be in their yard that day. Mm. Um, and, or they don't, they don't want to be using 20, 30 gallons a minute to water their lawn when they're trying to do the wash. Mm. So the... Um, systems typically get set up to to run anywhere from 2 to 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning.
2: Can we take a minute and go back to the source of the water? I think the other utility company we talked to dro- gets their water mostly from the White River or from a reservoir. Mm-hmm. And there's some concerns over both like too much water at some points and not enough water at other points. Mm-hmm. Do you have those similar kind of worries about groundwater, about wells?
4: The answer to that as far as a water utility goes, you're always concerned about your source of supply. You you always have to think about it because if you don't have that, you really don't have anything. Um, We are fortunate in that our wells and the aquifer we are in sustains itself very well. That yes, um, even in 2012, we did see a drawdown Um, Of our wells, but not to the point where we we couldn't reuse them productively Now if that continues if a summer like that would kept going for like three or four months, then yeah We would get more concern We're fortunate in that rainfall really um, Replenishes the aquifer we're in pretty readily. So I think the answer to that is um, sure there is a concern but uh, and I, for example, even in 2012, when it, when the drought ended and we got rain, we, we recovered what we had lost almost as quickly as we had lost it.
2: Something you said made me think, how do you know when people are watering their lawns too much?
4: There are times you see people watering in the rain. It's raining out, and it, if they don't have a rain sensor, people aren't going to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and shut it off. When we're at 25,000, 30,000 gallons a minute going out of the plant, um, and, a, and a typical fire is two thousand gallons a minute. You know, at, at that point, you're thinking that people are watering a lot. You know, is it, is it too much for anyone given lawn? I don't know the answer to that. I think at times absolutely it is. At, at times there's waste. There just is.
2: What would it look like in a world where we were able to use? like gray water on our lawns. Is that something that's possible?
4: It's certainly possible, yeah. And, and there's a number of um, HOAs or homeowners associations that ask, actually have stormwater ponds or they have lakes in their within their subdivision and they pull out of the lake, which we think is a great thing. So you're reusing that water. Uh, gray water um, or recycled water could uh, be a benefit. And I think you'll see more and more of that. Y- you still have the challenge though that you still have to get it out. You've got to get it from here to there. And that requires pumps, that requires power. Uh, You know, if homeowners had their own gray water storage on their own property and reused it right there, that that could be a huge benefit. But you, I mean, if we, let's just say we were gonna take the effluent from the wastewater plant and recycle it and use it for irrigation. Tremendous idea, but you still got to get it from here to there.
2: It's like you'd have to build a whole other system. Yeah, you'd have That's, to build
4: a whole another network of pipes and everything else.
2: Yeah, we've been reading a lot about water and learning a lot about the future of water in Indiana. And there have been some studies showing that in the next 50 years there will be a deficit of water. So, how, what is the utility's approach to that deficit and what is your kind of outlook on Indiana's water future?
4: Currently we're, we're fortunate in that we, there is sufficient supply. Uh, I think in time, you know, the report says that that could be, become more of an issue. Uh, so what we're trying to do is it, 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 it's a, there's a real balance you have to strike, you, 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 you've gotta be able to meet demand and you have to be able, to, that includes fire protection for sure. <laughs> First and foremost, really, uh, you have to be able to meet that, and you're, you're, you have to meet all drinking water standards. That can be very challenging to do, and it's, at the same time, while we are working to meet that demand, we are trying to work to reduce it. And we do try to work with uh, larger irrigation systems to get them to uh they, one way they can help us out is by watering on off days too. Um, mm-hmm. But we also try to point out to them, you can you can probably achieve the same results you want by running your irrigation system 10 minutes less. Mm-hmm. Things of that nature. The other thing that we're doing is we have, a, a, it's an $8 million project to change out all of our water meters. Our water meters are old, they're running slow. They're running slow in February, they're running slow in August. And that's a revenue thing for sure, no question about that. But the state and the, the Indiana Finance Authority and others really want utilities to be able to account for their water. You know, where, where is your water being used? Well, if you have a lot of lost water that you're not billing for, that's one way of dealing with that. But more, the other huge benefit of that whole program is, is homeowners are going to have um, the, the new meters record your, your usage every hour. and You can see how much you used. Homeowners are gonna have, we're not there yet, we're getting closer, we're, we've changed out of 30,000 meters, we've changed out over 10,000. But eventually homeowners are gonna have um, an app on their phone or otherwise an ability to see how much water they're using, how much water they used at three o'clock in the morning last night. Yeah. The other thing that is a huge, huge factor that gets lost is when people talk about power, uh, alternative forms of energy, the amount of power that we use at three o'clock in the morning pumping water. We are just biggest power of demand in Carmel by far. So that's the other thing that I think there needs to be more education on what it takes to deliver that kind of water.
0: The green lawn is a costly landscape choice, a luxury one even. While technology can help improve the efficiency of irrigation systems, there is another alternative, planting something other than grass. Next, Tass and Devon talk with Michael Payton of Greenscape Geeks, an eco-friendly landscape design company in Indianapolis. Michael will introduce us to the role native plants have in providing a water-friendly or even drought-friendly yard.
5: I'm Michael Payton, and I'm a landscape designer and co-owner of Greenscape Geeks. We're a sustainable native plant-based
3: landscape design build company in Indianapolis, Indiana. Could you just explain what a native plant is, like what that means? Yeah, uh,
5: there's a, a couple definitions, you know, for most of what we do in our business, we use native to mean in the Indiana or surrounding states is it was pre-settlement pre, uh, plants. Um, so they've, they've been here for centuries. They've uh, kind of evolved to be here. Um, I stretch the boundary sometimes if the design calls for it to include North America. Since they evolved to be in this place, they they take a lot less work to maintain themselves. So, you know, you're not out fertilizing and watering and constantly having to maintain them to for them to kind of thrive and survive here.
3: Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of using native plants in lieu of having a big green lawn? Water is the biggest.
5: Um, of course, a, a newly established bed you're going to have to irrigate in the first year and keep it, keep it alive, keep it established and water in periods of drought, but the amount of chemicals and water we use to keep green lawns is really <laughs> mind-boggling. And uh, and then if you talk about water retention and rain events, um, it's also doesn't do lawn doesn't do a good job at that. So we we like to use rain gardens to try to catch stormwater runoff. A lot of cities in the Midwest have combined sewer um, systems. So anything you can do to kind of keep water on site and in those rain gardens is going to help keep our systems from being. Overcapacity. we also find that using rain gardens and native plants in their beds also uh, capture a lot of that sediment and chemical things that settle on our roofs especially in city environments all of that gets washed off in a rain event and if that can be captured on site uh, microorganisms can help you know eat that and keep it Uh, from getting into the water. I tell people if you have a dog or a child, sure, keep a square lawn for, you know, to play on, but even those can be converted to a no-mow or a low-mow option.
2: To take it into a very, like, practical realm, like, when somebody is watering a lawn versus watering native landscaping in their yard, Mm What would be your recommendations for each of those? Like how often would you have to water a lawn versus watering native landscaping?
5: With native plants, if you're in a really dry spot or it's newly planted, you might be watering every day for the first little bit. But then, you know, I drop it to just when it needs to be watered. Uh, And that can be hand watered. You don't need sprinklers going every day. After that first year, they can pretty much take care of themselves. Trees and shrubs sure, check in on them. They're a living thing. Um, But, you know, it's an as-needed thing as opposed to, I have to
3: do this, you know, every other day or every day in the peak of summer to keep it green. I guess I just didn't really think about like, oh yeah, you don't really need to water a native plant as much because it's literally designed to survive here. Yeah. And then uh, some of that's going to
5: change. I mean, with climate change, we're definitely seeing a difference. And having very wet periods and then very dry periods and plants can not evolve that
3: fast for what we're experiencing now. One thing that I've never really understood, I mean, to me, it seems like a no brainer to do this, to like use more native plants, right? I think the reason a lot of native
5: gardening isn't at the forefront right now is that it's a a marketing problem. People hear native and they think, oh, wild prairie, you know, six feet of unmanaged whatever. And uh, it can be that. It can be a prairie installation, but tons of what I do is very formal landscapes that fit in with historic properties. And there's there's lots (laughs) of options uh, and lots of really beautiful plants that exist that are native. I think people, if they knew that they, they would probably be more open to it.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I think that aesthetic piece, people have this idea of a lawn should be a certain thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to kind of convince people who have it in their idea in their head, like, Oh, my lawn should look exactly like this.
5: I mean, the perfect lawn has been the, the norm and the thing you strive for since post-war. So like, you know, 70 years of this is when you've made it. You have the perfect lawn and the perfect house. And the lawn is the antithesis of what an environment should be. And Because we, we've not even touched on wildlife that'll thrive if you switch to natives. So uh, I think people being concerned about monarchs um, going extinct has kind of done a service to us and planning more.
2: If somebody wanted to get started with native landscaping and start the process of changing their lawn. How do you get started and where do you find native plants?
5: To get started with a native plant conversion, I would say if you're not a gardener, not to bite off more than you can chew. I know a lot of new gardeners are like gung-ho and then they're going to be overwhelmed. I like to start small, even in my own yard. Um, my beds I expand by two feet a year until I've just got the little square of grass. But I'd say start small. If you're in a new development, you're most likely have had your topsoil scraped as part of your new build, and so you're going to have challenges of very hard clay. So lots of loam, lots of good garden topsoil, you're probably gonna wanna incorporate. The great thing about natives is once you have that incorporated, their root system will kind of help break into that pan of the, the clay soil and kind of start helping you rebuild your organic layer. So I, I would say start small, do your research. We have a lot of great native plant cells here in the spring and fall. DNR and uh, Department of Soil Water Conservation District in your county they're going to be great resources for you.
0: We rely on clean water in our homes every day. Considerable time, money, and science go into making sure it comes ready to use. Follow along this season of the Collective Tap as we dip further into some of the challenges we face in providing clean water for everyone. In our next episode, we will talk with experts about the condition of our source waters. Later in the season, we will discuss water affordability and equity issues, what it means to lose access to water, and we will follow Taz and Devon as they try to reduce their own usage. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at the thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.